It was a staple of old movies and television shows back in the day. A gang of men on horseback riding down a hill or around a bend. Their faces covered in their neckerchiefs would descend on a train that had been forced to stop in the middle of nowhere because the tracks had been taken up or a large obstruction placed in its way. Stick them up, the ringleader would cry. This here's a holdup. His henchmen would board the train, telling the men to empty their pockets, turn over their expensive watches. The terrified women would cry, begging the ruffians not to take their wedding rings. My husband gave it to me before he died, they would sob to no avail. Some of the outlaws would go to the baggage car and throw down a locked trunk and a few sacks of mail. Then they would mount their horses and gallop off, screaming and firing their pistols in the air, celebrating yet another successful train robbery as they sped away to their hideout to divide up the spoils, waiting for the inevitable shootout with the clean-cut marshal and his faithful deputy who would track them down, eventually recovering the loot and ensuring the desperados met their deserved fate at the end of a hangman's noose. But it didn't stop with the advent of automobiles and the coming of the 20th century. Trains were still an attractive target for criminals. Perhaps the most brazen event happened in England on August 8, 1963. At about 4.20 in the morning, an excited voice came over the police radio. A robbery has been committed, and you'll never believe it. They've stolen the train! So, as summer fades into autumn, sit back with that quintessential of all British cocktails, a Pimm's Cup, and enjoy the tale of the great train robbery and see if you can solve one of the remaining mysteries. Who was the Ulsterman? In the days before electronic fund transfers, debit cards, credit cards, and ATM, most transactions were based on cash. Customers would pay for goods from local stores in cash, and the money would have to be deposited in banks. In England, and the United States for that matter, shopkeepers would simply put their cash deposits and receipts in a bag and take them to the local post office, where workers would put them all in heavy canvas bag and hand them on hooks outside the train station. A train would speed by, and without even slowing down, a hook hanging from the side of a mail car would grab the bag, and it would swing into an open door. Workers on the train would collect the bag full of cash and mail and eventually take it to another car where it would be sorted and dropped at the appropriate station. The mail trains were like post office on wheels. On a typical day in England in the 1960s, a mail train might carry about 300,000 pounds, the equivalent of six or seven hundred thousand dollars or about $15,000 in today's money. But on this day, the Glasgow-Scotland to London train carried more than twice that much money, 
it was a bank holiday in Scotland, and banks were sending old currency to London to be taken out of circulation and destroyed. On this day, the train would be transporting over 2.5 million pounds, or $7 million, $40 million in today's money. Someone knew this. Someone knew the train schedules. Someone knew what the train would be carrying. Someone thought this would be the opportunity for the score of a lifetime. Who was that someone? To this day, no one is sure. No one is sure if that someone even existed. If he did exist, his identity is still clouded in mystery. He was a postal worker with a thoroughgoing knowledge of security procedures. We only know him as the Ulster Man. He was contacted or was contacted by two career thieves and burglars, Gordon Goody and Buster Edwards. They, in turn, brought two other men into their plans, Bruce Reynolds and Charlie Wilson, two well-known and experienced thieves. Reynolds quickly assumed the role of mastermind. This core of groups began to plan the heist. They knew they would need additional help. They would need someone with railroad experience, someone who knew how to operate signals on the railway track. They would need someone who actually knew how to operate a diesel train engine. They would need drivers and people who knew the countryside. And finally, they would need muscle. So they enlisted a London gang who had some experience robbing trains. They called themselves the South Coast Raiders. All told, on the morning of the great train robbery, the gang consisted of between 15 and 17 members. One of the gang members knew how the signal lights on railroads worked. Near Caddington, he placed a thick glove over the green signal light and rigged up a battery to operate and turn on the red stop signal. As the train approached and saw the red light, it slowed to a stop. A crew member got out and discovered that a glove was covering the green light. He walked toward a phone beside the track to report this and discovered that the phone lines had been cut. Before he could shout out a warning, a gang member came up behind and grabbed him by the throat. Don't say a bloody word or I'll kill you. Other members of the gang quickly boarded the train. The engineer put up a fight, but one of the crooks hit him over the head with a crowbar, and he fell to the floor of the cab, bleeding. Other crooks disconnected the engine and the first car, which contained multiple bags of the used cash, from the rest of the train. There were several postal workers sorting mail in the other cars, but they kept on working. They didn't have a clue what was going on. As far as they were concerned, the train had just stopped. When the engine and the first car were free of the train, one of the crooks, 
a man referred to as Pete, a retired engineer, had been recruited to drive the engine and the first car down the tracks to a more secluded location. Unfortunately, Pete had never operated a new engine like this and didn't know how to drive the train. The crooks had no choice but to order the bleeding engineer up off the floor and move the train about 1,200 feet to a bridge. By this time, the other crooks had broken into the mail car and overpowered the four guards. They began throwing the canvas bags containing the money out the door of the car and into a ravine, where the rest of the gang was waiting to load it into a truck. All told, they were able to load about 120 of the 128 bags into the truck in about 30 minutes. The train crew was tied up and laying on the floor. The crooks told them to stay there for 30 minutes. And then they got into the truck and two Land Rovers that had been parked nearby and drove to a farmhouse which they had obtained for a hideout. One of the train crew got free and flagged down a passing locomotive, which took him to a phone by the tracks where he raised the first alarm. When the gang arrived at the farmhouse, they moved the bags inside and split up the loot. They set some aside to pay small sums to their associates, like the person who had been hired to drive the train and the person who rented the farmhouse. They divided up the remaining cash into 16 equal shares. It came out to the equivalent of about $2 million apiece in cash. The original plan called for the gang to hide out at the farm until Sunday. While they were waiting, one of the crooks had brought along a Monopoly board game. Some of the gang decided to play a game of Monopoly to pass the time, but instead of using the play money that came with the game, they used real cash. The crooks were able to listen to a police scanner and discovered that the crew had a good description of the vehicles they were using they quickly moved up the departure date from Sunday to Friday. One of the gang had been charged to wipe down the farmhouse to eliminate any trace of fingerprints. And as a final precaution, when he left, he was supposed to burn down the farmhouse, the barn, and the other buildings. On Friday, he did wipe down the inside, but he didn't burn the buildings. Oh, he forgot to wipe down the Monopoly set. The crime created a sensation not only in Britain, but around the world. Newspapers in America called it a British Western, and the crooks were favorably compared to Jesse James and the Dalton Gang, those famous American desperados. But where was John Wayne when you needed him? The local police were overwhelmed and called in Scotland Yard for help. The Yard turned the case over to a special unit that was created to investigate high-profile burglaries, the Flying Squad. It was headed by a particular tenacious cop named Tommy Butler. As the Flying Squad began its investigation, they offered a reward of £10,000 to anyone who provided information about the crime. As usual, the first break in the case came from a stool pigeon. 
a London barrister contacted the flying squad and told them that he might know someone who'd be willing to talk. Based on this tip, the cops were able to locate the farmhouse. The farmhouse that was supposed to have been burned down, but wasn't. And the crooks had done a fairly good job of wiping down the house to do away with fingerprints. But forensic experts were able to find a few palm prints on the wrappers that held the banknotes together. They also found some fingerprints on the Monopoly set. The first arrest occurred just a few days after the robbery. One of the cooks, Roger Cordy, was broke and started using 10-pound notes to pay off his landlady and other bills. Unfortunately for him, his landlady was the widow of a cop, and she became suspicious when her deadbeat tenant became flush with, with cash. The same type of cash, the used banknotes that had been stolen from the train. He eventually received 30 years in prison for his trouble. More arrests followed, and by the middle of September, eight of the core members of the gang and several of their lower-level associates had been arrested or nicked, as our British cousins like to say. The trial was held in January of 1964. Most of the gang was sentenced to 30 years, and in a couple of instances, some of their friends who had nothing at all to do with the robbery but who were caught up in the investigation were charged and given lengthy sentences themselves. But the story doesn't end there. Charles Wilson, one of the original core of four, was arrested on August 12th and sent to Greenbrier Prison to await trial. Three minutes after his cell door clanged shut, Three men stormed the prison and broke him out. A few weeks later, Paris Wilson was in Paris having plastic surgery. He later turned up in Mexico City with his buddies Bruce Reynolds and Buster Edwards, living the high life. He eventually ended up in Montreal, where he sent for his wife and children. Tommy Butler finally tracked him down in 1968 and brought him back to England for trial. Ronnie Briggs also escaped from prison in 1965, and he too went to Mexico. Then on to Australia and finally Brazil, where he married and had a family. By 2001, he was nearly broke and had already had three strokes. Because he had a Brazilian son, he could have stayed there. But he said he wanted to go home and walk into a pub as an Englishman and have a pint. He was arrested at the airport and sent back to prison. He was finally released in 2009 when he was 80 years old and died at home, a free Englishman at age 84. Bruce Reynolds, the mastermind, had fled to Mexico City. But his money soon ran out, and he returned to England, where he, too, was nicked by Tommy Butler. He served 10 years and was released before being rearrested for selling drugs in the 1980s. He served a few more years and died peacefully at home in his sleep in 2013.
12 of the 15, or 16, or 17, of the gang members were eventually caught and served time in prison. Of the 2.5 million pounds taken from the train, about 400,000 pounds were eventually recovered. The rest went to travel, booze, living, and legal expenses for the gang. But what of the Ulsterman, Mr. Inside, who provided the initial information about the train and the loot? In 2013, Chris Long produced a documentary about the heist. He and his staff searched the post office records and identified a man who seemed to meet the description of the Ulsterman. They found a picture of him and served it to Gordon Goody, one of the last surviving gang members. Goody had promised to always keep the identity of the Ulsterman a secret. But when presented with the photograph, and when Long told him the name of the man in the photograph was Patrick McKenney and asked Goody, is this him? Is this the Ulsterman? Goody swallowed hard and said, yes, that's him. Where is it? McKenney's family disputed this immediately. He was just a low-level postal worker, they said, who couldn't have had access to all the information necessary to carry out his robbery. He had no criminal record. True, he had met Gordon Goody on a few occasions, but there was never any indication that he was involved in any schemes. And above all, he died poor, with less than 3,000 pounds in his bank account. He'd worked at his job as a postman all his life. Where was all the money, his family asked. Some said that maybe he felt guilty and gave it away, perhaps to the church, or perhaps it was stolen from him. Later scholars have said that maybe there was no Ulsterman, but there was another man named Sammy Osterman who was just another criminal friend of Goody's. Was he the Ulsterman? Was it just a mistake in pronunciation of the names? Did the criminals really need more information to rob the train? This is the last mystery. Was there an Ulsterman? Was it Patrick McKenna? Was it Sammy Osterman? Or someone else? Thanks, Dad. That's kind of a fun one. Like a fun, hmm, not, not a whodunit necessarily, but you know what I mean. Well, it's interesting. I mean, at least in this one, no one died. Right, but we'll get to it, but it was a little more violent than what those crooks right, say. Right, Let's just say those men can't be trusted in any way, shape, or form. Well, before we get into our discussion... I have a bit of a trends of a trends of the crime section today. This is the part of our show where I tell you about fashion that was either in vogue at the time of the crime or fashion that has to do with the crime in one way or another. 
Today, I thought I would talk about travel clothes from the 1800s to the present. Oh, okay. Yes, because it's changed quite a bit. In the 1800s, traveling was pretty dirty because it was by steamship, train, or canal boats. And they were all coal-fired, and so they were covered in soot. Stagecoaches and carriages were dusty and dirty, and they were all crowded and offered little privacy. I'm really glad I was not around to travel at that time. You don't like dirt, that's I sure. sure don't. Because of this dust and dirt and soot and nastiness, people wore more utilitarian clothes to travel in, and then they brought different clothes to wear when they arrived to their destination. Travel was less dirty in the 1900s, so travel wear became more about fashion and etiquette than utility. This is a quote from, oh great, I didn't write down the title of the article, but it's from the article I found about this. Um, In June of 1925, Vogue declared, the boat is the country and the train is town in the morning to help women know what sorts of fashions to wear on a trip. So if you're traveling by boat, you address country. If you're traveling by train, you address town-y. And what, pray tell, was country and what, pray tell, was town? I'm picturing, see, I don't know for a fact, but I'm picturing country as like riding boots and like like hats, you know, like long skirts. Town is, let's see, 1920s, so that would have been a little more glitz and glam and a little more dressy. Heels. Uh, what's that hat called that? The, the, we talked about it in our early Jazz Age episodes, the, the cloche, cloche hat. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Synthetic fabrics were introduced in the 20th century, making travel wear more relaxed. Zippers also became a widely used and more convenient closure on clothing. And that kind of leads us to where we are today, where people just roll out of bed and get onto a plane or in the car and then, but, but I do that, but I try and make it fashion. Mm-hmm. So I'll wear like leggings with a baggy baggy top, but I still make it cute. Some people don't even try to make it cute. Just saying. Well, I remember the very first plane trip I took. I was a senior in high school and flew from Amarillo, Texas to Houston. So this would have been 1973 or 74. And I remember getting up. I put on a, uh, I dressed up with a coat and tie and, uh, nice slacks because I was going on a plane. Oh, how long was that plane ride? Couldn't have been that long. Four or five hours. I mean, well. Were they slower then? Well, no, it was a jet. But I mean, Houston from Amarillo was probably 700 miles. Really? Texas I is a big state. I guess top to bottom. Yes, You're Texas right. is a big state. Whereas today, if I get on a plane, I just want to wear as little as possible. Want to wear shoes I can slip on and off since I have to... Uh, you know, they don't, they're afraid I'm carrying a bomb in my shoe or something. So, uh, yeah, things have become a lot more casual mm-hmm. all over. I remember my aunt telling me when she would go shopping downtown in Hastings, Nebraska, which was not a big metropolis, uh, you know, she would dress up gloves and, and a dress just to go to a department store. So things have, uh, I don't know, I like today better than back then. I wouldn't want to have to get dressed up to go to the store. 
I like back then better. Well, okay. <laughs> I work on a college campus and man, no one dresses up to go to class unless they're a grad student. Like it's wild to me. Mm -hmm. I I was the anomaly when I was in college and put on jeans to mm -hmm. go to class. No one puts on jeans. Mm. It's crazy. No shade. I'm just saying. Yes. I like to look cute and get dressed yep. up, but that's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. That's all I had for fashion. Just something simple. How about the cocktail? Why don't you talk about that? Well, we are doing the quintessential English cocktail, a PIMS cup. I've never heard of it. PIMS, P-I-M-M-S. It is a gin-based liqueur with a lot of secret ingredients in it, but mostly herbs. Uh, so it's a little bit, it's darker than regular gin and it has a lower alcohol content, but um, we're going to mix some pims along with muddling some fruit like cucumbers, strawberries, etc., and then top it with, um, with some club soda or seltzer water. So it's going to be light and refreshing. So any tennis fans out there, if you watched Wimbledon this year, you probably saw the crowd eating strawberries and cream, and they would have a large Pilsner glass with a brown liquid in it, and that was a Pimm's cup. That sounds good. So that is what we're having, just your typical British Pimm's cup on this um, close to last day of summer. Oh, that sounds like a good drink. I'm excited. It'll be good. As I alluded to earlier, these guys were like, oh, we didn't mean for this to be violent. It was just to, for us to get the money, like the Robin Hood of the day. Yes. Bull, you know what? Bull crap. Because these guys came in hot and they were ready to kick some ASS to get that. M-O-N-E-Y. <laughs> yeah. They had some weapons on them, like clubs and sledgehammers, to scare and intimidate the people on the train. Well, to be fair, they had to use the sledgehammers to break into the mail car. But they didn't have to use them on the locked. engineer. No, they didn't. They didn't. And that engineer, so this doesn't sound bad. So he was 57 and he had to get 14 stitches, but his... Family was like, he was never the same. He died a few years later, but he did die from cancer. But still, if mm -hmm. someone beat you up, I'd be pretty mad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When they didn't really need to, if they had said sit down and shut up, he probably would have. Yeah. yeah. Because having worked in retail, you're not supposed to argue with the robber. Yeah. It, and it was interesting. They, they knocked him out, but then the guy they hired to drive the train couldn't do it. Right. So they had to drag him up, still bleeding from the head, and make him drive the engine. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. You know, there was quite a bit of um, controversy after the great train robbery because people were wondering, well, why, did, why didn't the guards have guns? Why weren't the guards able to, to overpower these people? And um, you may know that there's been a tradition in British law enforcement. I, I doubt it's still the same, but... You know, the old London Bobbies never carried a gun. All they had was a billy club. There was a lot of pushback from people saying if, if these, if the train guards would have had guns, they might have stopped this thing. But the railroad and the British government said, no, we don't want them to be carrying guns because that would lead to more violent robberies. Then the crooks would get on board carrying guns and there would be shootouts and people would die. So that's why the, um, 
That's why the, the guards on the train didn't carry guns, and that's probably why the crooks didn't carry guns. They realized they wouldn't have to get into a shootout. I really like that philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think the world would be more peaceful if the U.S. adopted that. Mm. Well, good luck on that. I know it'll <laughs> never happen. I'm just saying that's a pretty that's a pretty good idea, and it clearly works. Mm-hmm. But... We don't need to get into gun control yes. right now. No, probably not. <laughs> probably not. That's just my opinion. Uh, we'll come back to my next point on the notes, Dad, but okay. I want to skip really quick to mm-hmm. parallels to D.B. Cooper because this reminded me of that a lot. Hmm. Well, tell Did me why. Did it not you? No, not at all. But you tell me why. I guess because you have a train, you have a plane, you have lots okay. of money. Okay. Remind me, where'd he get his mon- that money? D.B. Cooper. Well, it was, he He held the plane hostage, said, I'm going to blow up the plane if you don't, if we don't land and you don't have the cash waiting for me. Oh, right, right. He got on the plane mm-hmm. and then stole the cash. All right. Well, I guess just the loads of cash and the mode of travel and the fact that they were all, the train robbers and D.B. Cooper were all described as like an anti-hero and a Robin Hood and oh. people were kind of rooting for them. It was like, are you for the crook or the police? And okay. people would be like, I'm on team robber. I'm on team D.B. Cooper. Oh, I see. Like, now. I want the, I want to stick it to the man. I see now where you're driving. Yes. Yeah. I, I didn't, I, I never even thought of that till now. No, I thought this was just some, some greedy guys who were trying to rob a train. I didn't think they were you know, trying to stick it to the man or or give the money away. They were just greedy jerks. Uh, and not all of them were clearly as smart as D.B. Cooper, whoever he was. Right. Uh, they were all caught within a week, basically, those that didn't run away and leave the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what what stuck out to me is in the documentary I watched on YouTube to kind of give me some background on the case, you saw a clip of two little boys being interviewed and they were asked, are you team robber or team police? Mm. And one said, I'm team robber because they, or because whatever, like the banks have enough money, like the little guy Mm. should get money. And then the interviewer was like, but it was dishonest. He goes, yeah, true. And it was funny. And then the older boy said, I'm team police because they did something bad. It reminded me of D.B. Cooper. Yeah. Well, I know when I was a kid, we'd play cops and robbers, you know, friends in the neighborhood. And I I will confess, I would have rather been the robbers. I liked Mm -hmm. hiding out, you know, getting my hideouts and finding places to hide and ambushing the kids who were playing the police when they came up. It was just, it was just more fun. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. Well, that makes sense because the little one wanted to be, well, it's team robber. Okay, let's go back. Okay. Who was the Ulsterman? Well, uh, and I'm not an expert on this case, but the more I think about it, I wonder if there was an Ulsterman. I mean, the idea was somebody had to tell them the train schedule. Somebody had to tell them that the train would be carrying cash on this specific day. Uh, Someone had to tell them how many guards were on the train. But as I've thought about it, Uh, I don't, and this was in the 1960s, I don't think that would have been hard to get this information. I mean, all they had to do was hang around the railroad station, and they would know when the train would leave. Uh, It was common knowledge that the trains were carrying banknotes and money. 
the fact that it was a bank holiday meant that there would be more money on the train. So I, I really don't know if there was an Ulsterman, so to speak. I think probably these guys figured it out themselves. Uh, they were, a lot of them, like like Reynolds, where they were experienced thieves. They they knew what to look for. And and again, I always think if there had been an Ulsterman, it would seem to me somebody would have talked by now. And uh, Gordon Goody was in his 80s. He he apparently just got sandbagged by the reporter and uh, saw an old picture of someone who he'd only maybe met four times. He didn't even know his name. He never knew the guy's name. He said the only reason he knew the name is he saw his glasses case with the name inscribed on it. So my gut feeling is there was no Ulsterman. There was no inside job. I think if there would have been, that person would have been caught and and would have been named. That's just my opinion. What do you think? I agree with you. I mean, there were so many of them involved. Yeah. Surely they did not need another, like, an expert. Like, Burt Reynolds, like you said, this was his, like, job yeah. was and, being a criminal. And by the way, it was Bruce Reynolds, not Burt Reynolds. That's a famous not, person. Yes, Burt Reynolds, <laughs> one of my favorite actors. No, it was Bruce Reynolds. Burt, if you listen to our show, I sincerely apologize. <laughs> if Burt's listening to our show, we've got another podcast coming up because Burt has been dead for about 10 years. But I digress. <laughs> I clearly don't even know who he is, but I knew the name. <laughs> What's he on? What oh, was he on? I don't know. Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, nope, I have no idea. Uh, he was a sex symbol back in the okay. 60s and 70s. Your mother would know him, I'm sure. I'm sure. Ask her about him. Anyway, Bruce Reynolds, he was a career, and a few others. Like, this is what they had done their entire lives. They yeah. knew what they were doing. Oh, yeah. That's why he was the ringleader, yeah. so. Yeah. I mean, this really was, in this documentary, they were saying, like, people like to think this is just a bunch of goofy guys who, like, came together and decided to rob. He was like, it was not like that. Like, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were smart about this. Yeah. And one big reason they all got caught was, well, for the ones who weren't as smart and because that policeman who caught them all thought like a thief. Like, yeah. he knew how to think like them. Yeah, he was he was the uh he was the John Wayne of this story. He was dedicated and tenacious and he he captured a lot of crooks in his day. Yeah. You know, I think another reason they got caught there were 16 of them plus more. There were 16 major planners and then they had to bring in a few other people to do certain little things. And one of the guys who who was not one of the major planners, but was supposed to burn down the house and destroy all the clues, he didn't do it for some reason. And Gordon Goody looks back on him, the, one of the surviving gang members. He said that's the one that, that they hated. Uh, they blamed him. Evidently, when Charlie Wilson found out that this guy had not burned down the farm, uh, he went after him, grabbed him by the throat, and was going to kill him. But some of the other guys pulled him off. Um, cause I think he knew, man, well, that farmhouse is still standing. Surely their, their fingerprints, their clues. And then there were. Another set of fingerprints that you, you didn't mention that was mentioned in the documentary was, I don't know which one it was, 
but he was alive when this documentary was filmed. Um, and his ex-wife was talking as well. Uh, and she said that they loved cats and mm. there was a stray cat and he would feed the cat mm. or give it milk or something. And his fingerprints were on that bowl. Huh. So yeah. I think he was the first one to get caught. Yeah. Yeah. Who was that? Do you I know? I can't remember the name, huh? Yeah. Yeah. But I think they caught him first. Yeah. There were three, I think, that have never been caught, that have been, that were never brought to justice. And one of them would, uh, he he wore gloves the whole time. He had mm -hmm. gloves on during the robbery. He had gloves on at the hideout. So, you know, he he evidently was pretty smart. But the rest of them, uh, not so much. I, I, I just still am aghast at them playing Monopoly mm -hmm. while they're waiting. It also wasn't smart to hide out in a farmhouse. No. Because farm people are curious and nosy. And they notice when people, when new people are there. Yeah. City people, you can blend right in. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. Why no one was like, maybe we should go where there are more people. Yeah. And hide in people. <laughs> maybe maybe you and I should think about, uh, you know. Should. Yeah, okay. We, no, you, uh, you didn't hear that. Right. Shh, shh, shh. Okay. If anyone wants in, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we need about 14 more. Yes. Well, I I went ahead and found, um, I was curious about other robberies and heists that have happened in history. Okay. And so I found, let's see, six. Okay. Well, and I was curious if you had heard about okay. any as well. Uh -huh. First, I have the Hatton Garden Jewelry Robbery. Ring any bells? Do you know when this was? Mm, nope. It does not ring a bell. Well, anyway, I don't know. I can look it up while I read. Uh, this was a seven-man job, and the men were all pretty old. They had a combined age of 443 years. Hmm. So I think most of them were in their 70s. This was in 2015. Hmm. This is pretty recent. Was masterminded by 76-year-old Brian Reeder and six career thieves. They used an elevator shaft to get close to the underground strong room, then drilled through half a meter of concrete into the vault. The value of the stolen jewelry was around 200 million pounds. The men were caught and imprisoned, and almost none of their haul was recovered. No, I'd not heard of that. Now I have heard of the next one you have. I was going to say I, I had even heard of this one, mm -hmm. the Boston Museum heist. Two men disguised as policemen were admitted into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. They quickly overcame the guards and stole 13 works of art with an estimated value of half a billion dollars. Mm. No one was ever arrested and none of the pieces have been recovered. The frames that the art was stolen from still hang empty in the museum. Why do you think they did that? In case they ever returned them? Or just to remind people? I think to remind people and... Yeah, my guess is those artworks are probably hanging in private collections mm -hmm. somewhere in vaults. Mm -hmm. They're never coming back. No, they're never coming back. When was this? Do you know? Oh, there must be a movie on Netflix about it. This was in 1990. I remember this one, yeah. The next one? Or Boston? No, the Boston. Okay. And I, I've heard of this one, the next one, the Russian hackers. Mm -hmm. We do have the year on this one. Mm-hmm. 
This was between 2014 and 2016, and a ring of Russian computer hackers stole an estimated 650 million pounds from banks all over the world. Using malware and phishing to hack banks' systems, they studied the operations and routines of the banks, even watching through webcams and CCTV systems, then transferred the money through fake accounts. They even programmed ATMs to dispense cash at specific times. They never took more than 80 million pounds from one target. They robbed as many as 100 banks in 30 countries and have never been caught. Isn't it nuts how people don't get caught? I mean, I get it. We should we should be focusing more on murderers, but it's still crazy that they don't get caught. I know you've heard of this one, the Pink Panthers. Well, but I not mean, this story, though, no, right? I mean, I've heard of the Pink Panther movie and, yeah. and the big Pink Panther diamond, but you said this was back in 2009. Right. So, no, no, no. I don't recall this specific uh, crime. The Pink Panthers were responsible for a string of large heists. Their largest was in 2009 when four men dressed as women stormed Harry Winston's exclusive jewelry store in Paris. They smashed display cases and escaped with an estimated 85 million pounds in diamonds. In 2013, a sole robber in a baseball cap with a scarf over his face walked into an exhibition of the, uh uh-oh, Leviev Diamond House in the Carlton Hotel in Can. Can. That's what I was going to say. Thank you. Just want to make sure. And made off with possibly the greatest single jewelry theft of all time, estimated at 110 million pounds. The Pink Panthers were again suspected as being behind that robbery, as well as the 2009. Well, I don't remember the robberies, but the Pink Panther movies are some of my (laughs) favorites of all time. They're good ones. Yes, Inspector Clouseau. Clouseau. And Clouseau of the Cirque. I, I like the Steve Martin version. Uh, I would like to buy hamburger. No, Steve Martin does not <laughs> compare to Peter Sellers. You're right. Pink Panther. You're right. Kittu! Kittu! <laughs> Next, we have the Wilcox train robbery. Another train. Anything? You know this one? Uh-uh. This was the robbery of the Union Pacific train by the Hole in the Wall gang, and it was the most iconic heist of the Old West. Two signalmen stopped the train in the middle of Wyoming. The gang then dynamited the rail car holding the strongbox, dynamited the tracks to stop any pursuit, then dynamited the strongbox itself. The gang escaped on horseback with about $50,000, equivalent to $7 million today, using fresh horses along their escape route to outrun any pursuit. Banknotes with the distinctive mark of one burnt-off corner would turn up for years afterwards as far afield as New York and New Mexico. Mm. Wow. That was back in the day, though, so I'm not surprised they didn't get caught. Then we have Saddam Hussein. I didn't know about this. Probably because I was pretty young when when he was big, big news around here. The largest single bank heist of all time was committed the day before the coalition invaded Iraq in 2003 when Saddam Hussein sent his son to the Central Bank of Iraq with a handwritten note to withdraw all of the cash in the bank. Kusay then removed about $1 billion in $100 notes and strong boxes requiring three lorries to carry it all. Approximately $650 million was found later by U.S. troops hidden in the walls of one of Saddam's palaces. Although both of Saddam's sons were killed and Saddam was captured and executed, 
more than one third of the money was never recovered. Hmm. What do people even do when they rob places and get all this money? You can't just go spend it. I don't know. You could spend the cash, but I, you know, and the jewels, I assume they just sell to collectors or the artwork and those people just hold them and admire them. But can't you not even spend the cash because then it looks bad? Like, well, you launder it. That's, yeah. You know, you, you like Ozark. Right. Yeah. You send it to some crooks who put it into legitimate businesses and then that is so much work. Yeah. That is not worth it to me. Mm mm. But some people like the thrill. To me, that sounds too difficult. Well, I'm on to my last point, unless you have anything else to talk about. Uh, go ahead and talk about the, the train robbery in the media. And then I do want to mention just a couple of other things. Well, there was a lot more than these, but these three I found the most interesting. But if you want a longer list, just look this up on Wikipedia. Singer Phil Collins starred in the title role of Buster in 1988. It was a comedy drama film loosely based on the life of Edwards, and Larry Lamb played Bruce Reynolds. Yes. There was also a board game called The Great Train Robbery by Bruce Barrymore, Halpenny, in the 1970s. Sounds fun. We mm-hmm. should look for it and play it. Yeah. And then Agatha Christie's Miss Marple detective novel at Bertram's Hotel in 1965 contains elements of the robbery. It'd be interesting. To, I'd like to look at that board game. That could be Me fun. too. Uh-huh. Maybe, maybe at, uh, we could get it before we go to Oklahoma City or over Ooh. Christmas for our little Taos trip. We could play it then. And video it. That'd be you fun. have a husband who loves board games? He doesn't love to play with me, but I'll make him. I, I just am, I have a hard time grasping rules of games. Ah, okay. <laughs> no, what I wanted to think about for a minute was just some of the, I was thinking about some of the movies where that that center around um, robberies and how the the criminals are portrayed as the heroes. I mean, the first ones that come to mind are the old Ocean Eleven movies. Remember mm-hmm. those? Yep. The, the the originals with oh the Rat Pack, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, and then the newer ones, mm-hmm. and then Ocean's Twelve with the all female cast. So I loved in, that one. It is interesting how. Uh, some of these less violent crimes, we're we're encouraged to root for the root for the crooks. National Treasure. Mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we seem to have a history in this country of yeah, we've we've got this old dark, dark secret of, yeah, we kind of like the the smart crooks who get away with everything. Well, I also think with robberies, it's like all we do is give our money, our money to these big corporations and they don't give us anything. And it's like, we want them to lose, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. like, I work all day and give you all my yeah. money. And so yeah. I want someone to take it back for, yeah. even though it's not coming to me. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, no one really gets the money. Right. I mean, the insurance companies pay it off and then we pay the insurance companies higher <laughs> premiums. So it's just a big cycle. <laughs> it is. It is. And it, but it's fun entertainment. Right. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. This was a fun one. It was. It was. What's next? We have Casey Anthony next Ooh, week. That'll be a good okay. one. A sad one, but it a is. good one. I also want to mention, like I said before, although no one died, it's still not great to hurt people nope. for selfish reasons. That's right. So no, no victims 
of death this time, but still. We will see you guys next week. All right, see you next week. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. 